We've now arrived at one of the most astounding sentences in the Bible, maybe one of the most astounding sentences ever written at any time. And I'm talking about John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what makes this verse so astounding and so astonishing is that John has just been describing to us the word. The word is um, taken originally from the idea in Genesis, and God said God uses words to perform creation. The word is the reason of God, the faculty of calling forth through pronunciation and declaration, the whole of creation. So here we have that very word of God in creation from Genesis identified with a person in him. He was with God and was God, and with God in the beginning. So we're talking of a, of a person who has existed for all time and who brought the world and everything that we know about, the whole of creation, into being. And he says this word, this idea, this reasoning, this um, truth, pronounced truth of God, this creative truth of God, this word became flesh. Now the word flesh here <coughs> means uh, became a human being. The word is socks. In some cases it can mean sinful flesh, but in other cases here like this it just simply means became incarnated, became a human being, was given flesh and blood existence. And that is an astonishing thing. As I say, it's probably difficult to imagine something even more astonishing than this state, statement here, that the very words and reasoning power, the declarative creative power of God became itself or himself a creation, a created being made of flesh and blood and bone and nerve and sinew. The word became flesh and lived for a while amongst us. That's important that bit because lived for a while amongst us means that we saw him, we spoke to him, we communicated, we touched him. He was a real living human being. But this this whole idea bridges an impossible gulf or gap between God on the one hand, the reasoning of God, the logic of God, the logos of God, becoming flesh, becoming human in character and nature, so that the two are equivalent. And so much so, it wasn't aloof, but was amongst us and that really is also astonishing from the point of view that, you know, when you live with someone, when you get to know them, when you've been with them for three or four years or more, you get to know all their faults. 
It's impossible to live with someone or be with someone for any length of time and not to appreciate their faults, their weaknesses, their failings, that when they get irritable, when they get difficult, when they become unreasonable. And yet that didn't happen here because when he lived a while amongst us, nevertheless, our conclusion is that this person who lived with us was the embodiment of the reasoning and the logos of God himself. That's astonishing. That's just, just an amazing statement to be made about any living person that you know. But never mind about that, the fact that God himself, or those who, he who was with God in the beginning, should become one of us, is an unbelievably um, transcendent statement of the way in which God has joined himself to humanity through this act. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only Son, some cases as the only begotten Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word glory is the idea of the radiance, the, uh, the thing which is the brightness, the, the thing which makes you awestruck, I suppose. When you look at something and you are struck with... Um, you know, jaw-dropping astonishment. This is the idea of what glory embeds in into our nature and, and our, calls forth our response. So I think the idea of glory, if I remember correctly, is like the, the, the brightness around the sun. It's that which radiates out from the sun itself and becomes a, a kind of... Um, uh, overpowering um, uh, rays of light which impact upon you in a way that leaves you gasping with astonishment this idea of glory and this is now attached to the person of Jesus Christ we have seen his glory we have been astonished at his truth and his teaching we have been overwhelmed and awestruck by his nature and who he is and what he said and it's just in case you're not sure as to what that glory is that it, we, he makes it clear it's the glory of the one and only son the only begotten son there's a uniqueness here which is important for us to to pull out the only begotten son or the one and only son stands in contrast to what was said earlier in a previous passage because he talks about he gave us the right to become the children of God so are we to say that this Jesus is a child of God in the same way that we have the right to become the child of God well no says John there is an important difference here because whereas you have the right to become the children of God you are not children of God by a genetic connection by physical connection by this intimate uh, nature of of uh, of essence by essence jesus christ is the son of god and the only son of god the only begotten son of god he stands quite in distinction then of being the children of god 
which you become through faith in him and through adopting the characteristics of God so that you, um, you share in the nature of God by practicing the virtues of God and therefore sharing in his likeness in the way that children share in the likeness of parents. But this is something deeper, more essential, more substantial. Being the only begotten son means that the very essence of this person is God himself. He came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In fact, Jesus puts it this way, I and the Father are one, is what he said in another passage. And this oneness between Jesus and the Father is a unique oneness. It is not the same as those who become the children of God. And, and John is making that clear. That's why I think he uses this unique term here, the only Son of God. Yes, there are children of God, but this is the only Son of God in the essence of the personhood of himself, the only one who was in the beginning with God, the only one who is eternal and eternally existing, existed before all of us and before the whole of creation. So there is something uniquely different here about the nature of this person, Jesus Christ, who came from the Father. Um, and again, we're talking about now a relationship of son and father. And this is something which I think um, is a picture that we can uh, hold on to or grasp something from here. Because in human terms, a father produces a son. And the same essence and nature that the father has is passed on to the son. There's a, a strong physical, genetic connection between the two. One has produced the other. In, in a real physical sense. And in the equivalent of that, the metaphorical equivalent of, of that, you have that connection between Jesus Christ and the Father, so that they were um, are connected in a way which we cannot be connected to God. We are created beings, and he is an eternally existent being. That's the nature that, that John is pointing out to us here. Quite a different character to ourselves. He came from the Father because, as John said at the beginning, he was with God and he was God. There's a uniqueness of position here and of purpose. And this being sent or came from the Father. Not quite the same as John, who was sent from God because he came from the Father. There's a kind of autonomy involved here as well, whereas that didn't exist with John. John was sent and told to do a particular job, whereas there's not that same implication here. He came from the Father. And the implication is that there is a, a kind of a, um, an autonomy, a desire, uh, um, a self-purpose to this, this event. And he says, full of grace and truth. You have to understand the word grace, not in our modern-day sense of being graceful like a ballet dancer but grace of course means that which is charitable charitable meaning the idea of a freely given gift something which you don't deserve something which you don't merit something which is um, quite undeserved on your part and yet a gift is given to you without any 
thought of this being a reward. This is simply an act of charitable kindness. That's the best way of looking at grace. And truth, truth being a clear statement of that which is, which corresponds to the reality of the world. If anyone has a proper understanding of the reality of the world, then it has to be God and that word of God, which is essentially the embodiment of truth itself, that which corresponds to the facts of the matter. That's the nature of truth here. So we have now a person, an embodied person, who has become flesh and who embodies the kind charity of God in coming to us and who speaks only the words of truth. He is, after all, the word. And the word is, if nothing else, an embodiment of truth or, or a statement of truth. So everything that Jesus says is the truth, which is why him, you know, he made no other claim than to say, I am the way, the truth and the life. Very powerful claim, very astonishingly um, deep claim to claim that whatever I say, you must take as truth because that's what it is. But that's what it would be if he is indeed the word of God. What else could it be? Switching back again, and John has this, this backwards and forwards motion. He starts off talking about the word and Jesus, and he comes back to, to John, who was in the world, John the Baptist. And then he comes back to the word again, and now he flips back once more to interleave this idea with John. And he says in verse 15, John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Now, John the Baptist then, giving testimony, John testifies. Testify, again, we're, we're back in the situation of a law court here. We're back in the situation of someone who is being a witness, someone who knows of what they're talking about, basically. To testify, you have to know what you're talking about. You have an expert witness in a trial because they have experience of something and they can testify to what they know. John testifies concerning him that he cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said that he comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And again, the writer of John's Gospel is very keen to point out that there is no equivalence here between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. They may well have had followers, each of them. They may well have even been rivalry between the disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus, as we've given some hints that that might have been the case. But John is making it absolutely clear here that the role of John was far inferior to that of Jesus Christ, that he's no more than the precursor, the one who's preparing the way, the way for someone like cutting a pathway through a wood or a forest. He is the one who has prepared the way for Jesus to come and therefore serves no other purpose than that which is a herald or a harbinger. So he, and he said, he who comes after me, because John came first to prepare the way, he who comes after me has surpassed me. So we have that very clear idea that there is no equivalence here between the two. He has surpassed me, 
Why does John say he surpasses me? Because he was before me. So there's this paradoxical statement which you're presented with here. The idea that John came first, Jesus came second, following after John, but Jesus is surpassing John. Why? Because he was before John. Doesn't make sense on the surface of it, but of course we're referring here to the fact that Jesus is eternally existent and was in the beginning with God, even before creation. So in that sense, he was before me. He was before my very existence. Even John the Baptist is declaring the same thing as John the Evangelist here, that Jesus was existent even before creation. And for that reason, says John, that's how you know that he surpasses me. I'm a mere creature and a part of creation, but Jesus has existed before creation, indeed brought all of creation into being through the statement of the word. From the fullness of his grace, verse 16, we have all received one blessing after another. So we're talking about the fullness of grace. Remember we said that grace was the unmerited kindness, the unmerited charity that we have been bestowed by the coming of this word into the world. That's how John puts it. That from that uh, unmerited and undeserved favour of God, we've all received one blessing after another. A blessing here is the idea of making one's life better or making one's um, whole existence uh, enhanced and improved. A blessing is where you have something which makes you, sometimes translated by the word happy and I'm reminded of the fact that the word happy comes from an old English word which means to happen. Um, happenstance means an, an event and um, happy means a happy event. Um, a mishap is a, is a bad event. So happy is an event that takes place and the idea of happy is a, is a good event. So blessings upon us are good events which take place one after another he says so it's not just limited to one good event but we have had many blessings many good events taking place in our lives because of the introduction of this person Jesus Christ the word into the world and if you want to know what those kind of blessings were well he goes on to give um, a statement about it in verses 17 and 18 because for the law was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ no one has ever seen God but God the only son who is at the father's side has made him known for the law was given through Moses okay so we've now got another contrast between the two Moses one of the greatest of the Old Testament patriarchs the guy who God chose to give the law through so that we know how to live what good and bad the difference between those things are thou shalt do this thou shalt not do that those kind of clear statements are a blessing to people but um, whereas the law was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ now there's a there's an interesting implication with this contrast because 
what we're saying is that grace and truth is far better and greater than what Moses gave, which was the law. The grace and truth are a higher thing and more blessing, a blessed thing than even the law is. The law is a blessing because it keeps society in check. It keeps us in check. It keeps us knowing how we should live and what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And that's a great blessing, knowing that fact, because many people who don't know what they should do or not do end up doing all kinds of things which just injure and hurt themselves and other people. Knowing the law protects us from that, and that's a blessing in and of itself. But an even greater blessing is this idea that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And that's partly because of the fact that an implicit here is something which we, we read about later on through Paul's writings, that we're not able to keep that law that as good as the law is, that we fail to manage it. And therefore, something above and beyond the law is required if we are to become closer and more united to God. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This kindness of God and this truth, which we'll learn more about as we've studied John's Gospel, is something which transcends that law and is even greater as a blessing. No one has ever seen God, says John, but God, only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Not even Moses. And I think the idea that no one has seen God is the idea that um, the idea of the burning bush. Moses came as close to God as anyone has ever come. Um, Moses um, encountered God in the story of the burning bush, but he never actually saw God himself. He encountered God on the mountain of Sinai, where the law was given, but he never saw God face to face. And I think this is the contrast here between Moses and Jesus again, between the law and between grace and truth. There is a huge gap between the greatness of Moses and the greatness of Jesus. Moses was as close to God as any man has ever been, had direct dealings with God, delivered the Ten Commandments from God, and yet he never saw God. No one has ever seen God but God's the only son. In fact, the term God, the only son, is a very powerful phrase because the way that's expressing it makes it unambiguously clear that Jesus Christ himself is God. He is not just the son of God. He is God, the only son. Godhood is built into his character, personality, nature, and very essence here. God, he is God, the only Son, who is at the Father's side. And John is speaking, of course, not only of the time before the creation, where he said the Word was with God and the Word was God, so it's an echo of that, but also here and now, because this is, of course, the time after Jesus has ascended back to heaven. So he's God, the only Son, who is at the Father's side and has made him known. So we live in a world where we are uh, dis distant from God, 
We can't just walk into God's parlour or, or room and meet God face to face. No one has met God face to face, says John here. Not even Moses met God face to face. But Jesus did, and Jesus, because of that intimate connection between him and God, he's the only one who could therefore make God known to us. And he does so through the word of truth. And that brings us to the end of that first section in John's Gospel. Next time, we hope to look at the passage which takes us into looking at John the Baptist and his closer relationship with Jesus.